Does your organization do any of the following? Annual performance evaluations, employee engagement programs, bonuses, taco Fridays? If you do, then you might be doing everything wrong. Today's guest, Patty McCord, helped write the Netflix Culture Deck, the PowerPoint that broke the internet with 16 million views and counting. It was radical in its simplicity. Treat people like adults. Patty now coaches and advises startups on building strong culture and leadership. She's coming out with a new book this winter called Powerful, Teams, Leaders, and the Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. As a friend told Patty, the book reads like it was written by a foul-mouthed seventh grader. Let's hear from Patty why we should all throw our HR manuals out the window. To start off, it would be great to hear a little bit more about when you fell in love with talent. I started out as a recruiter, which for a lot of HR senior people is not the particularly groovy path to start on. It's thought of as very workmanlike part of HR. But what I loved about it was I got to spend a lot of time with people who actually do jobs. And that's kind of my lifelong passion is trying to figure out what inspires people, what motivates them, what makes people great at what they do. And, you know, I started out hiring assemblers and and then I hired technicians, and then I hired electrical engineers and hardware engineers. I mean, there was nothing more fun than going into the robotics lab and having the guys get all excited about telling me about how they made an arm or something. And so how I got into it was just that fun connection between people and the work they do. You've seen small startups grow into global powerhouses. How do you determine what a company's culture is while continuing to allow for experimentation and really create a place where you can still take risks? All of those things are part of culture, and you cannot put it in a box, and you cannot ever keep it. So that when I come into small companies, that's the first question I'm asked. You know, we have a wonderful culture. How do we keep it? And I hold their hands and look in their eyes and say, you don't. And in my fantasy company world place where you work. It would be a place where you can come in and say, all bets are off, everything's changing. And instead of everybody freaking out, they say, great, what did we learn? What do we apply this time? How do we do this? So when I talk to small startups, I tell them, here's the deal. This is the end game for you. There's only three endings. You get bigger, you get smaller, you get eaten. Smaller's death. So you can't go back to the way it was when you were 50 people, when you're 500 people. You can't do it. And it doesn't sustain the 50-person organization, doesn't sustain it 500. And so what I'm trying to say instead is you can apply that same change mentality, that same experimenting mentality, that same way you would approach a product or a customer or a student that you always are learning how to do better to your culture. And so you want to think about the things that are deeply rooted in what you believe in, and that doesn't change. But how you do things can change all the time. What do you think particularly resonated with people who were reading the culture deck in those early iterations? I think it's just that it's logical. I think that the, it's truthful. There's really nothing crazy and radical in there. There's not. It's just the stuff that people read and go, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Oh, yeah, it was like that there. But nobody said it. The other thing is that it's in just plain 
English. And I've learned since I've left Netflix, and, you know, that was my lingua franca was the culture deck. So I was the, you know, high priestess of that. So I knew how to speak that language. And now that I'm out in the world talking to other HR people, they speak this goofy language that nobody understands. And so I think that the deep resonance was, A, it was very, very simple, and B, it was very, very logical. And I think the plain English part really helped a lot. So tell me about the process. How did you actually sit down, start to test out ideas, and really communicate that to the people who were at Netflix at the time? We had a layoff early in the company. Uh, we almost ran out of money. We laid off a third of the employees. It was a pretty, we we're pretty far in. We we're like three or four years into the business. And the dot-com boom bust happened, and those were all our customers. And so we laid off a third of the employees. And I stood on a chair with the people that were left, and I said, we're not your family. And that was the beginning for me of what I now think of as radical honesty. I just decided that I was tired of telling people something that's simply wasn't true. I mean, the business decision was the right decision, and everybody in the company knew it, and it didn't make us happy, but we didn't do a horrible thing. We just did the right thing for the business. Nobody would have a job if we didn't try. So that was the beginning of it. And then whenever we'd start to look at something and say, does this make sense? Partly because after the layoff, we were getting more work done because we didn't have the people who approved each other's work. We didn't have the people who really weren't that good. We didn't have the people who took the job because it was a job and weren't that into what we were making, right, or what we were doing. But we were just getting more stuff done. And then when it came time to put the rules back in place, that's when I stopped and said, really? What if we just asked people to be adult about it? What if we just said, use good judgment and common sense, and it's your company too, treat it that way. Would that work? And everyone said no. When we got rid of paid time off, I mean, our lawyers went ballistic. And we got rid of tracking it. We didn't say you couldn't take time off. We got rid of tracking time off. And so I stood up in front of the company and I said, we're going to try this experiment because we don't ask you to clock in and out of work um, because you're not hourly workers. We're going to try this experiment that we focus more on what you get done than where you are when you're doing it. And if it doesn't work, no worries. We can go back to the same time off policy that everybody else has. We can go back to best practices. Are there things that you tried during this time period that didn't work? Not really. It was more that we found out that it was a very unique kind of person that would thrive in that environment. So when we stuck to our guns, hiring became much harder, which is why, you know, when we published the deck, you know, we had been working on it for seven years. We used it as an internal onboarding document. But then when we published it, what's fascinating was it changed our interviews forever, which is why I often recommend to people that they're clear about their culture to candidates so they can opt in or opt out. So, for example, when I hired people into finance from very traditional organizations, they would say to me in the interview, well, you know, the one thing I'm going to want to change right away is I'm going to want to put in a time off policy and a travel policy and an expense policy, and I'm going to expect you guys to defer to me about that. And we'd say, oh, thanks a lot for coming. Patty, everybody likes perks and bonuses and stuff to keep employees happy. Mm -hmm. What's so bad about all of that? Well, nothing, really. It's just that for what reason? Uh, If it's because you think that the more stuff you give people, the happier they'll be, and then you don't have to do anything else, that's just 
again, that doesn't follow my logic of what's the point. I love celebrations. We, I encourage people to have just knock down, drag out celebrations when you do something amazing. I consulted to a startup. They're like, yeah, you know, we break out a bottle of champagne every time somebody makes a mistake because we want to encourage mistakes and failure. I'm like, well, that's dumb. Okay. That's just Drinking champagne every time somebody screws up is probably, you know, you're going to make enough mistakes without having to celebrate every one of them. It's because I've been doing this for 30 years and I've talked to hundreds of thousands of people and I know that when you go home from work and you say to whoever it is you're talking to, your pet, your significant other, oh my God, it was a great day at work. It's hardly ever followed by comma, there were macadamia nuts in the cookies. It's always we did something. And then let's talk for a second while we're on that subject about compensation and bonuses, because it's something I talk to a lot of people about. And again, I don't know that we've proven that humans work for bonuses. I think we all like more money. I mean, because partly we measure our success on that. I I don't think it's fair that we do, but we do. But I'll tell you a story about a school district I talked to, and they were talking to me about the comp and structure for their teachers, and they had a bonus that they paid people at the end of the school year, ostensibly to help reward them for doing a great job of teaching that school year. And I mean, and this was a district where people, the teachers made very little money. The cost of living was going up and up. And I said, so they have to work hard all that time to get this money that they could have been spending on like a better car or a nicer apartment or (laughs) not commuting. I mean, when you're thinking about compensation, you have to really start to understand the lives and the demographics of the people that you're employing. We tend to put people and their jobs in hierarchical classes of goodness. It's one of the things that makes me crazy about teaching is like, it should be at the top, but it's not. And so there are so many ways to work now. I'm loving consulting. It's terrific. I have a lot of freedom. I meet a lot of people. And I don't think of it as I've stepped away from real work. I'm just doing a different kind of work. You talk a lot about hiring adults and avoiding bozos. Mm -hmm. You use a different word sometimes. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to hire A players? And how do you know if you're hiring the right people? Well, I think we do that a little bit backwards. And so that'll be a chapter you can read in the book. So before we start thinking about A players, first we should think about what we need to get done. So if we spent a whole lot more time describing and understanding the problem that we want solved and the time frame we want it solved and what goodness looks like. So instead of writing a job requisition that's a description of what everybody else has always done, let's talk about what we want this person to do to be successful in this role. Really talk about it. I usually tell people to give it a six-month time frame. In six months, if you hired the right person and all your dreams came true, what's going to be happening then that's not happening now? And if you walk backwards from that and you say, wow, okay, maybe I need somebody who's going to be really good at community influence. I not only need somebody who's great in the classroom, but I need somebody who's going to be really good at getting parents and teachers involved. So what would they need to know how to do? Well, they'd probably have to have an outgoing personality, right? They might need to have a track record of doing those sorts of things. They might need to have not just done those sorts of things, but have results that are associated with them. Then you look at, well, what kind of skills and experience would it take to do that in order to accomplish? 
accomplish that. Then you go decide who to hire. So I'm talking to a group of startup CEOs in San Francisco about a month ago. And one of them says, raises his hand, he goes, you know, Patty, if I hear you correctly, you're, you really are saying you want an A player at every job. And I said, that's what I said. And he said, yeah, but you don't really mean that. And I'm like, no, I really mean that. That's why I keep saying that. And he said, yeah, but, you know, there's jobs where you just don't need an A player. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, some jobs, you just don't need to think that hard. And, you know, you just don't have to, you don't have to be that good. And I said, well, which job in your company is like that? And he said, well, you know, like payroll. <laughs> I said, really? You don't want the person that's paying all the people you think are important to think paying people is important? You don't want them to be accurate. You don't want them to be smart. Don't you want them to think of a better way of doing it than the stupid way we do payroll these days? Wouldn't you want somebody really innovative in that role? And I said, by the way, you know, since it's just us, your finance department really hates you. And he goes, well, I don't think you know my finance department. And I'm like, you just told a room full of strangers you think people in payroll are stupid. So I'll, I'll leave you with my algorithm for success. I call it an algorithm because I worked with engineers all my life. It goes like this. Is what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing something we need someone to be great at? And it works both ways. And so if you're coming to work and you don't get up in the morning, you don't really want to go and you're frustrated and mad, then stop thinking it's just them. If you say to yourself, they don't realize how good I am at something and they never give me a chance to do it, that might be that what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing is not that important to that company at that time. They don't care. And if they need you to be amazing at something, and you can just do it because you can, then they're frustrated too. So that two-way street, that reassessing, you know, what success looks like for you is, I'm afraid, a lifelong pursuit. And a company's obligation to be honest to people and tell them when things change. Let's get our Alec Baldwin on. There's his famous line from the movie Glengarry Glen Ross, where his character says, always be closing. Your far less insane corollary is always be recruiting. How's that mindset play out in great organizations? Because how we started, talent is everything, right? You're only as good as the team that you put together to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And so you can't wait until you need somebody to find somebody. So we called it ABR, and yes, always be recruiting. You know, when I talk to CEOs, I say the people on your team should see you interview at least three or four times a week, even for people in the jobs they have. Because if something happens or they decide to move on or you just, something changes, you want to know who are the most talented people in that world. And when employees get threatened by that, you know, sometimes you interview somebody else and go, well, I didn't realize how good I've got it. I think the job of management is to create amazing teams that do fabulous work with quality on time. That's it. You are a big fan of radical honesty. What's that actually look like in practice, and where do people get tripped up? You know, I use the word radical honesty because just straight-up honesty doesn't seem to do the trick, and I wish I didn't have to throw it in there. People can hear the truth. They really can. I can say to you, you know that job we hired you to do three years ago? You have done an incredible job at that, and now you're done. And we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for your efforts and you're completing that. And now that you're looking around for something else to do, there's not anything like that because you did it. And now we're on to a different set of problems that honestly, if I brought you in today and for an interview, I probably wouldn't hire you to be on that team that's solving a different set of problems. And so let's not torture ourselves 
let's not prove you're incompetent because you're not. You're really competent. So where can you go for the next the version of your career where you're going to be really fulfilled? And I think if we start telling the truth like that, it's sad to me that that's perceived as radical. Where do you start if that's not the current company culture? How do you start infusing more of that kind of openness and transparency? You have to model it. People can't be what they can't see. And so if you say one of our values is honesty and transparency, but there's certain information that only senior people get to see, and I know something that you don't know, you've just lied. Here's the deal about me. I worked with software engineers. They are, everything is black or white, good or bad, zero or one. Any shade of gray is not a nuance like we think about. That's a lie. That's bullshit. But you have to tell people straightforward logically, not to be mean, but to be straightforward and honest with people. So I think it starts with saying at a meeting, gosh, Caroline, you know, you've been complaining to me about how bad this decision is for the last three months. We've been discussing at this meeting for two hours and you haven't said a word. Did we change your mind? Did you decide not to say something? And then have you say your disagreement and live another day. So people have to see it. So it starts with leadership teams, but it also starts with leadership teams recognizing the people in the organization who are willing to speak up. But I want to say something about that speaking up, because some people think that means I'm giving the whiners permission to whine, and I'm not. So I have a saying that says, have an opinion, take a stand, and be right most of the time. We've changed the conversation about feedback from giving people information to make them better workers, make them better employees, make them better teachers, make them better people, to constructive criticism. Constructive criticism is a tool that is effective. It's very slow. It's called guilt tripping. So when I say that bad thing you did, that was a really bad thing, results in bad things, don't do that bad thing again. The next time you do that bad thing, because you will, you'll feel bad. Instead, if I catch you doing something amazing in the moment and go, oh my God, that's exactly what we're talking about. That is incredible. Look at what you did. Look at what was affected. Look at how you did it. That's incredible. You're going to do that again today. And that's the kind of feedback that I think we could use just as much practice on, too. What is the role of the manager? Uh, I can say what it's not. It's not a parent. It's not. It's more of a coach. I've been really lucky lately because I do a lot of speaking and I tend to be teamed with actual sports coaches. It's in my book. I did a story of a talk with a guy who's the winningest hockey, National Hockey League coach. So the moderator says to him, Mr. Bowman, he, and I'm in Canada. I'm in Montreal, right? These, this guy's getting a standing ovation. You've worked with all the great players. You've had such winning teams. How do you give people feedback so that you have this ultimate performance? And he said, well, uh, we play an 80-game season. I sit down every 10 games with each player, and we map out We take a look at their statistics. They do a self-evaluation. I do an evaluation. We talk to other team members, and we say, what's been working so far? What can we work on more? Which team members should we practice getting better at? What's our strategy for the next 10 games? Who are we playing? What are we doing? And he's like, and I just keep doing that with every team member for the rest of the season. So moderator says to me, Patty McCord, you're famous for hating the annual performance review, but I've never heard you say what you would do differently. What might that be? And I said, what he said. It was so long. Logical. I mean, think about that. So you know it, you anticipate it, there's going to be good feedback, there's going to be bad feedback. So that's where I think a manager's role is really important. 
In education, there is a big struggle with this idea that people aren't going to stay in one career forever because teachers get better over time. What does your view on where we're going as a workforce, what does that mean for schools? You know, it's interesting because it's another kind of schizophrenic response, right? You want a lot of freedom, but you want tenure. Or we want to reject the idea of tenure, but we want to keep our people for seven years. It's about making that learning experience of getting better as much of the job as the job of teaching. I think it's about just understanding that there's going to be mobility. For me, in some ways, it's kind of a marketing thing. It's marketing the, if you put the time in to become a great teacher, that's something you can do anywhere in the world. And if we stop thinking about harnessing them in our schools and, you know, and if they go away, they'll go to another, you know, you got to lay the demographics on top of it, too. I remember somebody in education said to me, you don't understand it takes seven years to train a great teacher. And I got somebody who's going to go across town for another $5,000 a year, $5 an hour, whatever it is. And like, they can't do that. I'm like, of course they can do that. They're 25 years old. That's what you're supposed to do. It matters. It makes a difference in your life. You know, I think it's a whole bunch of rethinking of, again, questioning the stuff that we're doing in education that's working, thinking about the workforce that's joining us, thinking about what the value of being a teacher really is. That's a great sell for people to have wonderful mobile lives. You can teach all over the world. Why wouldn't you want to do that? It's something about packaging that early stage learning curve so that for the people it brings joy to, it brings great joy to. And we create a generation of teachers that's really engaged in what they do. And the same thing, it's like my HR model, go be the future and celebrate that. When I talk, especially to your organization, I just think, oh, how lucky anybody is who's passionate about this and gets to be part of this system. And how you should think of it as an ecosystem as much as you think of it as your school and your district. We're just creating a better generation of educators, and the world will be a better place because of that. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Patty. What makes a great organization isn't a happy hour or swag, but a team of amazing people doing amazing work. And above all, a truly powerful organization has this in mind. Always be changing.